session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 310-441-0555. Just to share something up front before I talk about it later on, definitely saddened today one of my favorite athletes of all time, Kobe Bryant, tragically died along with eight others yesterday. And uh, as many of us in L.A. and, of course, just not in L.A. around the world, very surprised and shocked and saddened. Um, I'll talk more about what it means to me and also put it in some perspective in the second segment today. Um, But I do want to keep some of the regularity of how I do the show and start with the books. Um, So I'll do the book review and first I'll introduce the book for this week. I'll talk about on next week's show and that book is How to Be Yourself by Ellen Hendrickson. How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic and Rise Above Social Anxiety. So um, as I've done before, definitely liked that title, How to Be Yourself, but it, it appears it's not just about that, but related to social anxiety, quieting your inner critic. Critic sounds pretty interesting, so look forward to reading that and sharing that with you next week. Um, The book of the week from this past week that I'll talk about today was uh, another great one I know and I talked about Crib Sheet last week. I said that's probably going to be one of the top 10 books of this year because I liked it so much but I can definitely see this one um, being uh, one of the top 10 books as well and that book is Superior, The Return of Race Science by Angela Saini. Superior, The Return of Race Science by Angela Saini. You might remember uh, last year I read her book Inferior, which actually did make it to my top 10 books of 2019, which was in a way similar to this book, looking at how science and scientists have looked at differences between men and women and bringing in lots of their own assumptions and making interpretations based on data or looking for certain types of results had often came to the conclusion that women were inferior to men in different types of ways uh, and how a lot of that science has now been proven not true or not supported by the evidence and we can see the biases that have run throughout that so this was essentially a similar theme but now related to race and how scientists throughout history have tried to um, do quote-unquote science to prove a lot of times assumptions they already had about differences between races, primarily, especially that whites were somehow superior. Um, Whites, Aryans, Anglo-Saxons, sometimes different terms are used for it, which also reflects that uh, we don't really have definitions on race, which I'll definitely touch on, uh, and what race is. But throughout history, we've seen this happen where people have looked 
and tried to look for evidence, whether it's in biology and DNA and archaeology uh, and psychological studies as well, trying to find differences based on race that oftentimes are not there at all. And especially, as I just noted, even what race is, is not clear. Um, and that's changed over time. And even depending on who you ask, you'll see different answers. I remember uh, an anthropology professor um, I had at UCLA, Dr. Daniel Fessler, he was talking about race. And uh, I remember it was still one of my probably favorite lectures I had in all of my college career. Um, but basically how race was, the whole lecture was about race being a social construct, something you hear a lot, um, but maybe we don't take really to heart because race seems so real to us because it has so many real world implications. Um, and I actually recall talking to Dr. Neda Marboula, who wrote The Limits of Whiteness, and we're talking about race. And I said a comment to her that, you know, race is a social construct, but like money, which is a way a social construct or contract we have, um, it is just that, but it has a lot of value and meaning in our society today and probably too much value and meaning, just like race does, where we value it too much or give it too much weight and significance, even though we often are not sure what we're talking about, but it has huge impacts in the world, even if it is socially constructed. But anyway, in this lecture, uh, Dr. Fessler made a lot of important points about race. One of the big ones that still um, is written often is that there's more genetic differences within a group than there is between groups. So oftentimes we think uh, that races are going to be so different. However, we're going to define race and that they're going to be genetically very different. But when we actually compare them, we see that within a group, there's so much, if you want to call it diversity or range of different characteristics, than there is when you compare people from uh, different groups. But yet we still hold on to this belief, and so many even scientists believe and hold on to this, that there has to be these big differences between races because they seem so salient and real, or people that look different. There must be something deep down in their biology that makes them very, very different, um, when in fact it doesn't seem to be the case. I also remember Dr. Fester talking about how we think of race as such a real thing at times, where people feel like you can tell people apart, but really we can't. Um, even when you go on certain bases of like skin color, someone who many people would consider black or is identified as black might be lighter skin than someone who's white or some other race. Um, he also would talk about how if you go to certain regions, to you everyone might look alike, but within that country or that region they might see three very distinct races and they'll have prejudices and stereotypes based on those different races, which to you might seem funny because you'll think, well, I can't even tell them apart, but here they are judging each other and uh, treating each other poorly and having these prejudices about each other for differences that I can't even see. But actually what we should probably do is rather than looking at them and think how silly and stupid they're being for being racist in this way, think back to how you're doing the same thing with different types of races that you're giving significance to that you're believing and buying into the stereotypes that are not real and that are essentially man-made and not actually something you should be thinking differently about people. Now, so what race is itself is a, is a very fuzzy and blurry subject. And actually, I thought it was interesting near the end of the book, she was talking about um, an anthropologist, Duana Fulwiley, who was 
from the Harvard School of Public Health, and she was spending months um, with the researchers in labs in California who were trying to look for genetic differences in how people responded to drugs. This is something that still a lot of research is being done on this, of looking at how do different people from different races respond uh, differently to different medications and different types of treatments. Um, again, with this assumption that there must be something fundamentally so different uh, when usually they don't see almost any differences at all. And then what she had done is she actually asked uh, these scientists who were doing this research and using race very often as a way to determine different things and as part of their research, well, how would you define race? And she said not one of them could give her a confident or clear answer because we don't really have clear answers. Now, we might think, oh, I know that person is of a different race or I know this person's race or I know people from this race or this way, but really how to define it is not clear Sometimes people make it four or five groups. Sometimes they subdivide into a bunch of different groups. But really, it's about uh, there aren't these clear-cut things that races are. It's something we can create and something that changes, changes throughout history and can change without, uh, within even a country's own history or time period based on how they want to define different things. Um, and really, as she points out in the book or the research shows what we, we think of our ancestry, what that even means is very blurry as well, depending on how far back you go. Because throughout history, there's been a lot of mixing of people from different regions or people have uh, intermingled, so to speak. So it's not this pure way of looking back in time that we can say, these are my ancestors. And related to that, actually, um, I thought it was interesting. She talked about this new thriving business of people trying to find out their ancestry. There's uh, 23andMe, Ancestry.com, where people send in their spit and then get a a map back that tells them where their ancestors come from when even really it's not clear they're getting much. But I think it's actually our desire to try to understand ourselves better and also our desire to feel connected to something better and also to be part of something bigger and better. Even with Persians, I know they really like to talk about the Persian Empire and we're descendants of these great people and great civilization, which means we're somehow better than, which is where I have a huge problem with that, is thinking that you're better than because of that, which also um, we don't even know exactly who you came from. If you came from those better than people that you already think of, even that's up to interpretation. But I think there's big problems there. And this is part of what we see is unfortunately the consequence or even maybe the impetus behind some of these types of interpretations that are made. Um, oftentimes, white scientists trying to prove why they are superior. And oftentimes, the scientists now especially might not have nefarious intentions. They might not even be racist consciously or wanting to do racist type of science. But unfortunately, by studying race in the way that they often do, they contribute to the racist types of thinking that perpetuates. And oftentimes people from groups that are racist will pull from their research things that they think are proving, again, their superiority or the inferiority of other groups or showing why it's important not to mix. You know, this is something you've heard a lot throughout history, especially when genocide is about to happen, about not mixing the purity of a certain race. Of course, Nazi Germany would likely come to mind for a lot of people. Um, but the research, unfortunately, is contributing to that. And so that's an interesting point, how 
we want to make sure everyone is included in different types of research. So it's become a big thing, especially, I think, all over the world, but especially in the United States, that when you do research, let's say, on medical uh, medications, that you include people from different races to make sure no one is left out. But this, in a way, has made race seem even more essential and important. So then they look at how different races, quote-unquote, respond to the medication, which then perpetuates and continues this cycle. Um, so it's interesting looking at uh, Angela Saini give this account, especially of recent history. We might think that there was so much racist science happening before, um, and there definitely was, and she talks about that in depth. But it's continuing to this day, and that is concerning because people use this to perpetuate racism, prejudice, and harming others, and it makes race seem even more real than it actually is. So I really found um, those aspects of the book very fascinating, uh, going back in time where people would find archaeological remains and think, okay, this man looked this way, and they would assume he looked very white and he was found in Britain. I think he was called Cheddar Man was what they'd called him. Um, and they were very happy to say, look, this shows that Britain was always white and he was this kind of a man. And later, once they did other uh, new types of analysis, they found out that he might have had light eyes, but dark skin. And that was very common back then or in this region. And this was hard for people to swallow that wanted to say Britain was always white. And they had to find new ways to show a claim to this land or claim that Britain needed to be white, be white again, like it was before when it was good, which is how people use this type of science to try to get to the conclusions they want to get to, which is very unfortunate and very sad. Um, we see this theme come again and again, people just wanting to prove something. A very interesting one she talked about uh, was how Neanderthals, who were amongst one of many humanoid or human-looking types of species that existed uh, in our you know, ancient past, um, and how when they discovered, when the whites had discovered the Aborigines in Australia, they thought, oh, they have a resemblance to Neanderthals. And so they were more primitive in their mind. They were not as advanced, not as intelligent, whatever it is, those words that made them feel superior to them and thought they were very like the Neanderthals. And so Neanderthals had a very negative you know, view. And it, actually, if you use the word Neanderthal to describe a person now, it means you're saying they're very primitive and stupid and all these negative things. Then later, it was discovered that actually there was lots likely interbreeding between these different humanoid species. And we see that there's a higher percentage of Neanderthal blood or DNA in some European, Northern European individuals. And so after that was discovered, all of a sudden, the, the Neanderthals, as if they hired a, a PR firm uh, thousands of years after they were extinct, uh, became not that bad. And all of a sudden, they said, you know, maybe they were smarter than we thought and were developing tools and all these different things. They became all of a sudden not these backwards, uh, bad, immoral, um, less than types of species. They became something more advanced, which is interesting now that they were more related to some of the people who were white and maybe were doing this research, all of a sudden they got an, a new image of uh, being a lot better than maybe we thought, which is quite interesting. So um, throughout the book, as I mentioned, she outlines this history of how science has been used 
to prove different things uh, that really are not at all true. And I really enjoyed um, the book and getting into the history of it and really paying attention to how easy it is, even for me as I was reading this book and thinking, okay, I'm thinking it from not a racist type of mindset or about race as being so real. And then I realized how it's hard to not think about race in the ways that we do because it's become so much ingrained in how we just think about things, that there are these differences or that people are different or that we're going to find differences or how can people who to us look so different from one another not have some big differences when maybe in fact we don't. And so it's going to take a long time for us to, to come to a better understanding. It's one of the last parts of the book talking about um, how we're going to have to have a psychological sea change, uh, which, which one of the um, researchers she talks about in the book says that the way we think about race is going to have to change, and that's going to take some time. Uh, but we all have to be cognizant and mindful of how easy it is to slip into these ways of thinking about things, of thinking about race as so important, and thinking about how different we are because of race, when really, as I've mentioned now a few times, race is something that we can't really define clearly for sure, even at all. Um, we don't really know what it is, and everything that we found has shown that when we try to compare people that we think might be so different, they really are not that different at all. So we have this common humanity um, that we can hopefully recognize that we all are a human family. We're very much alike just because you um, live in different regions or you think your ancestors came from different regions, first of all, they might have been mixing much more than you thought and you might not be as purely whatever it is you think you are um, than you in reality than what you think you are. Uh, but they really were not that different. So really, there is this unity in our humanity. And I loved what she wrote at the end of the book. I always read the acknowledgments when I read the books. Um, but she talks to her son and she says, I don't know what the future holds, but I hope he never has to face the struggles that his parents did. I hope he understands that how we look, our genes, and even our distant ancestry are not the only things that give us our identities. Even culture is not everything. What make us makes us are our personal experiences and our individual actions. Don't forget that, my little man. Um, and I really like that part because I was thinking about that throughout the book of not thinking of just who we are based on this identity of race or heritage or whatever it is, but really we are who we are in our lives, not because your ancestors were Cleopatra and Alexander the Great that now makes you royalty. It's based on how you live your life, live a royal life, not royal as in um, being entitled to things and being treated better because of that, but be royal in the sense of how you live your life, or really, let me just get away from that part, but just living our lives the right way, being good, doesn't matter who or what you come from, it's who we are. And um, this book does a great job of looking at the history of the science of race and racism and how it's been used, but also some warning calls of how it could be used now and in the future. We shouldn't think that we're past that because we still see it happening today. So that was Superior, The Return of Race Science by Angela Saini. Highly, highly recommend the book. All right, let's go to a commercial break. Welcome back. As I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, very saddened since yesterday hearing the news about the death of Kobe Bryant. Uh, and I was trying to get the timing right, and I thankfully did. 
uh, here in the studio right now when I look at the clock it says 824 and um, he his numbers were 8 and 24 as a player he was 8 originally and then he later in his career changed it to 24 and so I was hoping that I would start start this segment then um, and I know a lot of people are saddened by this I also know for some people that don't care much about sports or are not that into it they can think why is this such a big deal and uh, I do understand there are bigger tragedies in the world and many people suffering in different ways and so um, this is not that's definitely the most important thing but he affected a lot of people and I'm definitely one of those people um, so I will talk about it since I do want to share what's on my mind um, just about him and about the impact he had and also maybe some lessons we can learn from the tragedy it's not that we want anything bad to happen we can't stop something like this from happening but anytime it does happen we try to see what we can get from it as well uh, so going back just personally sharing my own story with Kobe Bryant uh, I've been a Lakers fan since I was about five years old and so when he came to the Lakers in 1996 I was about 14. He was only a few years older than me, actually, which is kind of crazy. But then for the next 20 years, watched him play probably, I don't know, I haven't calculated it, but I'm sure more than a thousand times. Um, and had so many good memories. Of course, as a sports fan, you deal with painful memories as well. But uh, it really was such a joy watching him play. Had so many great memories throughout his career, including that last game I still remember being at my friend Sam's house watching the last game he ever played where he scored 60 points. Um, but so there's just so much and so many memories, inspiration, so many fun memories, and so many memories with my brother Parham and other friends watching him play. And so you become very connected to these people we see on TV or people who watch movies and get attached to actors or listen to someone's music. We've seen that happen, unfortunately, in recent years where very famous musicians have died and people's reactions to that. We get impacted by these people. And, of course, many people have brought attention to the fact that Kobe wasn't the only one who died. Unfortunately, there's eight others, including his own daughter, but also others as well. And we don't want to forget them and all the families that have been affected, of course. Um, but for me, I've cried many times since yesterday, including just maybe an hour and a half before the show was watching some highlights of him playing and just started crying very hard. So um, my heart has been heavy thinking about what happened, how sad it was, uh, how unexpected it was at the age of 41 for him to pass when he was really just starting the second chapter of his life. And it's just very heartbreaking. And of course, he had a wife and three other children. The loss to them, losing either a father uh, and a sister or a husband and a daughter uh, just unbelievable and very saddened by that um, so I was heartbroken and I'm going to continue to watch things about him I know some people avoided watching things but I, I want to see him watch the videos and as I said there's some take-homes I think we can get from this um, one is that you don't know how long you have with the loved ones around you, of course, was very unexpected. And so 
Many people have used this as another reminder that life is short, life is fragile. You don't know when will be the last time you will see one another and what's going to happen. So try to make the most of the moments and the relationships we have in the moment now. You never know what's the next moment it will hold for you, if there'll be another opportunity to share that love or to resolve that conflict. And I know for a lot of people, they might say that just means, well, let's forget about everything that's bothered us. And a lot of times we can, we can try to let go of certain things. But to me, it also means not just forget about them because that doesn't usually work in the long term. Uh, but let's resolve the issues. Let's come together and talk and try to make amends and make things better and create a better relationship together. Even actually, um, if you look at Kobe's own life, you know, he had different types of beef or uh, issues with people, including Shaquille O'Neal, who he won three championships with, but then they had their divisions and even fights during the times are together. And eventually they parted and there was some bad blood for a while and they would talk bad about each other. But eventually um, they reconnected and became friends again. And we saw how close they were. And actually Shaq's message after Kobe passed was very heartbreaking and very touching. Um, but calling, uh, Kobe's daughter, his niece, and talking about Kobe as his brother. And you saw Shaq's son post something calling Kobe his uncle. So we see that in his own life he had that. He resolved things in his life, and we can remember that, but also remember that for the loved ones we have. Let's not uh, let feuds linger and let things uh, that are between us get in the way of potentially being closer to one another. We can resolve things and, and get back because we never know when will be the next chance or the last chance. Um, I know people have also mentioned, well, he did some bad things and there were some things he went through. Of course, he was a human and I'm not ignoring those things and I'm not talking about him today to say he was a perfect human being. Um, but I do appreciate what he shared and gave to me in the city of Los Angeles and to the Lakers and ways that we can be inspired by him, by those actions of good that he did. And so related to that, another thing that Kobe was known, known for more than anything amongst basketball players was his incredible work ethic. And um, that actually was something I was thinking about too, of, you know, we want to have someone's legacy live on. And because of that, one of his was to work hard. And so a reminder just to myself to work even harder towards my own goals and ways that I can contribute. Um, I'm not going to be playing for the Lakers anytime soon, so my way of working hard won't be necessarily on the court or in practice, but in doing the things I can to become the best version of myself and in a way related to uh, how we don't know how long we have each other, but how, how long we have ourselves on this earth, that we want to work as hard as we can and do the best work we can because we don't know how long we will have to do those good things. You might not have an opportunity in 20 years to do something good that you're thinking about. You might not have that chance, so we have to do it now. So um, those two lessons, I think, blend together about the hard work, about doing the best that you can, but also that life is precious and fat, fragile and we don't know when it's going to end. So we all want to think, how are we going to leave our legacy? As you can see, Kobe affected so many people of course some of that is because sports is so big in the world and you can make arguments about why is that so and should it be and all that and i think there's something to be said there but it was also because of his hard work 
and his dedication to doing the best he could, not giving up, um, persevering, that actually allowed him to have such a big impact and to, in that way, um, uh, become a legend and that he will live on. And so each of us can think, how can I create a legacy for myself? Of course, almost none of us will have this type of a legacy or become as well-known as him. And we shouldn't think about it as a measure of fame when I'm talking about leave a legacy. But leave a legacy in what you do, the kindness you show, whatever it is you contribute to the world in various ways, whatever your field is or whatever it is that you do, recognize that you want to leave your impact in a positive way. And the only way you're going to do that is through hard work and dedication. And so we can have that Mamba mentality, which uh, people would talk about when it comes to having that hard work, that tenacity, not giving up and leaving our impact. And that's something I'm thinking about myself. How will I leave my impact or continue to try to do good things in my work and in other ways um, to make sure I take advantage of the time I do have. Now, you'll see so many quotes from him, um, and I really think a lot of them are great. One that I came across that actually I really liked because you think of Kobe as a confident person. Of course, he was. He was very confident. He would talk about not wanting to back down from any moment, not being afraid. Um, and he showed that in how he played. But to me, it's always important to remember we might look at people and make gods out of them and remembering that they're human. But he was a, he was a very, uh, here was a very human quote from him um, that I really liked. So this is a quote from Kobe Bryant. I have self-doubt. I have insecurity. I have fear of failure. I have nights when I show up at the arena and I'm like, my back hurts. My feet hurt. My knees hurt. I don't have it. I just want to chill. We all have self-doubt. You don't deny it, but you also don't capitulate to it. You embrace it. And that was a quote from Kobe Bryant that I really liked, showing a little bit more of that vulnerable side, um, but a reminder that when we see people that we admire, that seem so confident, that seem to work hard or always get it right, that even they doubt themselves, but they don't give in to that doubt. They go forward anyway. They don't give up on themselves and they don't give up on what they're doing when they know what they're doing is good and right. And I think that can be an inspiration to all of us. Of course, we're going to doubt ourselves at times. You're going to have moments where you think you should give up or you can't do it, but we don't want to give in to that. We want to, to keep going um, and, and see what we can do to make sure we do our best. And so, uh, again, we do make gods out of people um, in the media, in sports, music, entertainment but of course we're all mortal and unfortunately um, we had to be reminded of that yesterday when unfortunately Kobe Bryant was taken from us far too soon but we'll remember the positive memories the good times um, that we had watching him play and outside and also uh, try to remember to love each other a little bit more to take advantage of every moment that we have so thank you Kobe um, he was the player of my childhood, and I started watching him as a kid. But when he retired, I was an adult, a man. And um, throughout those 20 years, he gave me a lot of good memories. And I'm very grateful for that. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the last segment, I was talking about Kobe Bryant, who tragically died yesterday, and how heartbroken I am. Um, along with so many others, which I, I've uh, 
just seen such an outpouring on social media and everyone I talk to, even you run into people and you tell them, um, I saw someone, I said, yeah, I'm kind of sad today. And he's like, yeah, I know why. Uh, and even so many of my clients that came up today and you see so many people wearing Lakers gear. I mean, you always do, but even more today, I saw people wearing Lakers gear, which is cool. Yesterday I was wearing Kobe Bryant socks, um, in honor of Kobe, uh, and so I wanted to talk in this last segment just about dealing with grief and loss. And it, it's interesting. Yesterday I was so sad, of course, about the news, but I was meeting with a few friends and one of them had lost her father recently. And so I, I had this interesting moment before I even saw her of thinking, I am sad about this, um, but I know she had just lost her father a bit over a month ago. And so it feels odd for me to be sad about a basketball player in front of someone who's still grieving the loss of their father and so I actually did um, talk to her when I first saw her I said she said hey how are you doing and she knew I, I'm a big fan and that I was sad so I told her I was I said look I almost feel um, odd to be sad in front of you because I know what you're going through but she was very understanding and and we talked a bit about you know, everything, which was nice, but, you know, it was just tough. And I, I did talk to her more about what we were talking about, her loss, but just that unfortunately loss is inevitable. Uh, we deal with it as humans. We're going to lose people. Of course, um, sometimes it's celebrities and things like that, but that's not what I meant more about in our personal lives, people that we were very close to, we're going to deal with it and it's very difficult um, and challenging to deal with. And we all have to be ready for that but we tend to avoid thinking about it or dealing with it and most of us really aren't taught or told much about what to do um, to begin with we try not to think about the fact that we'll have to deal with this we are in denial very often I think that's why it's such a shock when someone does die of course this was a shock because of how it happened in the age of the victims um, but we know it isn't an inevitability of life is death there only can be uh, death if we also have life um, but we don't want to think about what we will do or how we'll handle that and it, there is no recipe even I'll talk about some things today but there's no blueprint that this is how you should grieve or this is how you're supposed to grieve and that's the first point I wanted to make that there isn't a right way to do it or a right way to feel um, and we shouldn't be comparing grief to one another i know i did it with my friend because of what we were going through was so different but what i mean is that if someone loses their mom and then you lose your mom we shouldn't be comparing well they were this sad i should be that sad or i'm more sad which means i love my mom more or whatever it is that we're doing um, we should recognize how individual and unique of an experience it is that we can't compare and we can't tell someone what to go through or what they should be going through and feeling and so we should give ourselves the space to grieve how we want to grieve and also those around us whoever it is if your friend or loved one has lost someone close to them um, be there for them but even ask them how they want you to be there for them and give them that space to grieve as is always the case if we really want to be of love and support and care for someone we have to do it in a way that feels right to them so if someone says they want space, 
then you give them space. If they want you just to be there, just be there. If they want you to distract them or watch a funny movie with them, uh, do that. But if they don't want to laugh, don't force them to laugh because they might not want to do that. And so a big part of giving space means that we have to be willing to accept uh, ourselves. But if you're being there for someone else, the negative feelings that come with losing someone, and that could be very hard for people. Uh, the, the biggest reason we have a hard time with this is we have a hard time tolerating those feelings in ourselves. And so, of course, it makes sense that being sad doesn't feel good. It's not a, a good feeling. We sometimes call them negative feelings because they don't feel good. Things like sadness and, of course, really big grief does not feel good at all. It's one of the worst feelings you can have. But we do have to accept that it is a part of living. And to me, actually, grief and how painful it is to lose someone is just a sign of how much we mean to one another and how much we value each other. And so when someone dies and we miss them, of course, it's sad, but it's also a testament to how much they meant to us, how much we valued our relationship with them and how much now we will miss losing them, at least in physical form. We will miss not having them by our sides anymore. That's what makes it sad. So those tears, of course, they hurt. And it's not that we should want them, but um, they are a testament to that goodness. It's because you loved them so much that now you are sad. And that makes sense um, that you're feeling that way. And, and it's very painful. And also, one of the, the first stages of grief we talk about is denial. Um, and even in a way before that, our part of that is this shock and disbelief. It's just so hard to comprehend that you just saw someone and now they're gone. Even in this case with Kobe, I know a lot of people, including myself, you'd see him every so often on TV in recent weeks or months. And so then now he's just gone. It's very strange. But especially for loved ones you're seeing every day or talking to every day, for them to be gone, it just doesn't make sense. And really, it's something that's hard for us to comprehend. Um, someone being here and no longer being here. We know that it can happen, but until you experience it, it's very difficult and people will go through lots of different things in this process where it doesn't make sense to them. They'll go to sleep and wake up and think maybe it was just a bad dream. Um, even last night for me, I, I realized I had some pretty violent and dark dreams when I woke up. A lot of them related to things that could have been death related. And then when I woke up, it did take a minute to realize the news again was real. Um, but people, especially losing a, a family member, will often go through this for quite a while. Uh, they'll see the person in lots of places or think they hear their voice. And that, of course, can be heartbreaking, but we can understand that they're so obsessed or focused with that person that they're, they're going to see them everywhere. And there's probably this deep down desire to wish they could see them again. So very often people will see the person. They think they'll, they'll be in the street and think they saw their, their wife or their mother or father, whoever it was that passed away, um, because they'll be reminded of, of that person and it comes back. It doesn't mean you're going crazy or something's wrong with you or that you're seeing things. Uh, it's just you're dealing with an incredibly painful loss. And because of that, you are still dealing with it and it's something that's hard to deal with. It's as if you've been hit with a shock that's too much to absorb all at once or too much to take altogether. And so it's going to take some time to process it. And related to that, taking some time to process it, people will say, uh, you know, when will you get over this or when will you be get over it? 
And for most people you talk to when they are discussing a serious loss that they went through, they'll say that they never get over it. There's no getting over certain losses. Uh, life really will never be the same. And we shouldn't expect it to. doesn't mean life can't go on. It doesn't mean you won't start, start living or you can't have a life that's different or that is dealing with this loss or that you'll move on in the way of that you'll keep living. You'll move forward, but you won't move on as and get over it. And so we have to accept that. And even with my friend, we we're talking about this, how it's kind of like um, there'll be a scar on your heart that will always be there. It's never going to go away. That, that scar will never heal, but you will learn to live with that scar, with that pain. Um, the pain might become less, it might become different, it might not ever go away. Sometimes people use some very simple ways of looking at things. Well, if you're still crying after this many months, that's a problem. Well, there's people that might talk about someone that died 20 years ago and still cry when they talk about certain memories. It doesn't necessarily mean um, they haven't dealt with it or something unhealthy is going on. It could just be that those are very poignant memories that bring up even some good feelings and some nostalgia and they cry. So don't think that you have to be happy at a certain point. Sometimes people think, well, after six months, life should be back to normal or after this many months, you should be okay. Or after a year, you should feel this. You do want to pay attention to how you're grieving. And I don't want to say that every type of grieving is as healthy as every other type. If someone becomes an addict to deal with grief or becomes so depressed for the rest of their life, there's things that we have to look at. And there are things that are sometimes clinically called complicated grief, meaning you're not going to the grieving process um, smoothly or things are getting in the way. And so you want to be aware of that. So it's not that we shouldn't be aware of what we're going through and think about it at all, but we do want to recognize that there's a huge range of experiences that people can have in a healthy and normal type of grieving um, that might seem surprising to others, but that can be okay. So uh, it can be a good idea at times to go to therapy once you're ready to deal with a grieving process. Sometimes people do go in for uh, a set of sessions just to deal with a loss and it can help them process that loss because when we lose someone, there's so much to deal with. Of course, there's the pain and the sadness, but then also almost always with anyone who dies, and this is related to what I was talking about before, how we want to resolve things and talk about things, we're going to have some unresolved issues, things that we never got to work out or things that were on our mind or feelings we never got to express. And so when they die, there's also this feeling that we've lost that opportunity. And also this can complicate the grief we have. Sometimes people can have such a hard time feeling like, okay, my mother or my father has died. I'm so sad. They did so much, but I'm also mad at them or hurt by things they did. And that's interfering with the way I'm feeling. They might even feel guilty. How can I still be mad at this person who's now dead? How can I have these bad feelings about someone who's no longer with us? But it can make sense that those feelings are still there. And oftentimes the death can trigger them even more, bring them up because you'd put them away. But now that they're gone, all those feelings come back with this idea that I can't deal with it anymore. You maybe can deal with it, not with them, but you might have to deal with it in order to be able to grieve in a more uh, healthy way for yourself to be able to continue going forward. So there's all those things you might be going through. People also, especially this can be a cultural thing, will oftentimes talk to people who have died. And as long as you're aware you're doing this, this is very much a common experience. People will have conversations, especially when they go uh, to the gravesite. That's very common. But even still, people at home might talk to 
their loved one that has now passed away. Uh, this doesn't mean you're crazy or hallucinating or schizophrenic. It just means you're um, dealing with loss in this way. And that's how you want to experience it. Uh, some people want to hold on to things to remember them. Some people don't want to see things because it brings up too much of the pain. And so again, there isn't a right way that you have to do it, that you have to deal with things. Now, one thing that many people will experience, especially sometimes, let's say, a child who loses a parent, is because people are afraid to make them sad or they think talking about their dead parent will make them sad, they won't let them talk about it or their parent becomes almost a taboo topic. And I've seen this happen a lot. Um, and it's very unfortunate because the person feels like they have to forget about that person or that it's not okay to think about them or they have to forget about them and they don't get the chance to actually process and deal with those feelings. Children, of course, are more sensitive than an adult, but they also are much more resilient than people often think. And they actually are thinking about these things and feeling these things, whether we bring them up or not. And so rather than just denying them the opportunity to talk about it, denying them um, the chance to process it, and also denying them a chance to connect. If you've lost someone that you both loved, let's say it's your uh, husband and their father, they deserve the chance to talk to you because you can connect over that loss. That's something you share together. But by making it taboo, you actually both suffer in silence and it creates a wedge and a space between you because you're thinking about it all the time. But if you're not allowed to talk about it with one another, well, now there's this huge wedge because there's this big taboo. There's an elephant in the room that you can't talk about. You might even have a hard time being around one another because of that. So um, to those of you who think it's better to avoid it because it makes them sad, it, this again comes from the mindset that sad feelings are all bad and if you can avoid them, you're doing something good. But when we're dealing with loss, pain is part of it and we need to process that pain and the more we're given the space and opportunity to actually talk about it when we want and talk about the person who has died and, and be able to share memories or share things that were still heard about, whatever it might be, that helps and won't interfere with the process as much but it's it's one of the hardest things i think about life goodbyes of different types even when there are breakups and divorces and you don't have someone in your life anymore or when it comes um, from the ultimate type of goodbye of death it's very difficult thing to deal with and i think it is so hard to deal with and we should recognize that it is hard it is painful and there is help out there there's support groups there's therapy um, I've seen a lot of posts about different types of group therapies for people who've lost someone in response to what happened. Um, so there is help out there. It's a hard process anyway. So if you want help, it's a very good time to ask for it. But especially when it comes to us as families of one another, as always, give each other the space to have our experiences, to grieve the way we need to grieve. Not everyone will grieve at the same time. You can be in the same family. One person is ready to move forward in certain ways and another one isn't. One person wants to talk about it, the other one does not. And we have to recognize that we're going to have different ways of grief, grieving, different speeds, if you want to call it that. There isn't just one right way. Um, some people are more expressive. Some people hold more in. Some people that hold it in maybe would benefit from talking, but we can't force them either. So giving each other that space to grieve is very important. And um, I know it's a different type of grief of losing an athlete that you always admired, but I'm dealing with some of that myself. And uh, of course, it's been difficult, but uh, really that was the motivation of talking about it today was about Kobe Bryant. 
it's hard for me to even say it. It's like feels weird to say uh, who passed away yesterday. And so rest in peace to him and everyone who was lost and condolences to all the families that were affected. All right, that's the end of tonight's show. Thank you to Amir here as always. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Lakwi. Good night. Thank you.